Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's get you back up to speed with that ECB rate decision, shall we? Rates unchanged, but there was was always this suspicion that maybe they tweaked forward guidance, and they have done. The forward guidance used to be the ECB sees rates as a present level for as long as needed, or at least through the end of 2020. The new guidance essentially is that rates at present or lower levels for as long as needed. So that's an extension and strengthening of forward guidance. So that's story one. Story two, on rates, if they introduce a lower interest rate, they've ordered a review of options, including a tiered system for rates. So that would offset some of the pain for the financials. Good news for the financials, good news for the banks. So euro weaker down by a tenth, banks up on the stocks 50, euro stocks 50 up by a little more than 2%. So that's forward guidance, that's rates. Let's talk about asset purchases. ECB staff also examining options for potential new asset buying. So under consideration, a review of options on rates included a tiered system for rates and options for potential new asset buying as well. So QE under consideration, tearing under consideration. And it looks like this could all come, Lisa Bravitz, as soon as September. This is exactly what the market was expecting, though. Right. I mean, honestly, this is this is pretty much uh, they figured that the ECB would be uh, trying to assemble some sort of package to uh, really hit the eurozone and try to ignite some growth. This kind of confirms that. Yeah, I think it's really encouraging, though, to see the bank stocks up by 2.9% in Europe. Uh, Less focused on the euro, for me at least, just looking at the financials and the equities responding positively to this decision Basically, so the, the idea, the implication here being that, that the ECB understands the pain that would be inflicted on yep. the banks if it didn't do some sort of alleviation of the steep uh, discount rate, uh, given the fact that they would have to pay 0.5% on their deposits held overnight yep. if they did uh, lower rates without tiering. The idea that they wouldn't have to pay all of that is giving some confidence uh, to uh, European banks. And Lisa, I would also say my other interpretation of this decision as well, I don't think they've held off until September because they get the start forecast I think they've hold off they're holding off until September because they haven't really agreed on the parameters for a new asset purchase program it's pretty clear that they're still examining options for that that headline has come across the Bloomberg also pretty clear over the last few months since President Draghi first teed up the idea of tiering if rates went even lower it looks like they're still reviewing that too so I think the reasons to hold off until September are not about forecast. It's about actually coming to an agreement about the parameters for new bond buying and whether you introduce tiering. And coming out with a full guns blazing package to say, here's what we got. And shock and awe, let's get this started. I mean, really, I mean, it's, it's not just going to be one little uh, blip of a move and then sort of trickle out the rest. Let's bring in Seema Shah, shall we? Principal Global Investors Chief Strategist. Seema, great to have you with us on the program. Your interpretation of the decision in the last 10 minutes. Yeah, not too dissimilar to what you've said. I mean, I think maybe what happened this morning was given the very weak ISO number and then also the weak PMIs from yesterday, that perhaps the market had raised slightly their expectations for a rate cut today. But in truth, this has really met expectations. I think they have done some pretty good stuff in terms of announcing tiering, as you said. That is very important for banks because up till now, you've had ECB policy, which is really being undermined by their negative rates and not really helping banks. So that's certainly a positive... And with potential for QE, you know, I don't think anyone was really expecting an announcement for today. 
but the fact is that they are laying the laying the groundwork for something to be done, at least um, some more details in September. It may be that uh, it's really left for Christine Lagarde to actually bring it into force. But really, the market doesn't want to know that. And I think from here on, there's going to be a lot of focus on what are they likely to buy. And we know from previous times that the corporate bond purchase program was the most effective. And that is what the market is focusing on. So, Seema, let's focus on that just for a moment. Uh, as we know and pointed out by m Investments, 30% of the high-grade market in the European credit market right now are financials. Do you think there's a possibility that the ECB could start buying the debt of the companies that they also have to regulate? I think that may well be a step too far at this stage. I think there's so many um, kind of various constraints, constrictions that they are under that that may have to be a step further and you may only see that once the market or the economy continues to weaken and you don't feel like any clear deposit is really helping banks. So I think that's a, that's a further step in the same way that you know we hear all this speculation of, are the ECB ever going to buy equity? I think you need to see a really drastic deterioration in the economy before they go down that road. So, Seema, let's say the ECB does come through with what the market is currently expecting, a rate cut, tiering, and some sort of uh, format for what further asset purchases would look for look like. Will that work? Will that will that actually jumpstart the European economy? Well, you know, I think that's a key question because what we have here is you have monetary policy really, it's at the walls of its effectiveness. So you can only move the dial so much. Um, a lot of it is going to be via the communication and simply, you know, if they were to just do a rate cut and maybe tearing, that's simply not enough. It definitely needs the QE. I think for me, when I look at asset classes, the key beneficiary, assuming all of that comes in, is going to be the credit side. Um, and it's not a fundamental. It's simply a technical move. And that's what the market's been hoping for. But from the fundamentals, I am very dubious this is going to really push Europe out of the kind of stagnation that we are seeing at end of the next year. Yes, Seymour, I think you've touched on something really important. Just the supply story. Are you going to buy the supply story? If they buy more corporate debt, there'll be less corporate debt for other people to buy. Yields are going lower. That may well apply to credit. On the sovereigns, what fascinates me is whether you buy the effectiveness story, because ultimately that would mean you sell 10-year bonds because you believe the ECB policy will work. Are you essentially saying, Seymour, on the sovereign side, don't expect higher bond yields on longer maturities anytime soon? No, I don't think there's going to be anything, any meaningful thing on, on bonds. I mean, I think, you know, the key thing, of, you know, you simply cannot fight the technicals. So there may well, I think, um, you know, especially if Treasury comes in and be surprised in the market, you could see a slight move down the bond yield, but they have to be close to their floor. Um, you know, we all know that the peripheral yields are the ones that can be the key beneficiaries of any ECB move. And the boon side, the, the kind of the France, they may not be the key beneficiaries. But I think that we could see some movement from Italy, from Spain still. But as you said, Germany, it could be a different question. Seema, do you agree with Larry Fink of BlackRock that the ECB should buy equities? It, you know, I think that there is certainly a case, but I think there's a very big difference between Europe and the U.S. And the key thing is this. In the U.S., whereas a lot of retail investors are, uh, are in equities, in Europe it's simply not the case. So they have a, a smaller holding of equities relative to the U.S. So if the ECB buys equities, it actually has less of an impact on the underlying economy than it would do in the U.S. There is less of a reason. The ECB is also under major constraints politically and legally. Um, so I think that that is that kind of the last step in the road. 
German 10-year right now, down three basis points. Fresh record low on a 10-year maturity in the bond market. Your yield, negative 41 basis points, Lisa Bramitz. Yields grinding even lower on the continent. Well, and this really raises a question, Seema, about the efficacy, as we were just talking about, because if you look at market expectations, it is that the ECB will be ineffective. I mean, you're seeing the yield curve shrink given the fact that you're seeing that 10-year boon yield uh, drop to all-time record lows if you look at five-year, five-year forward break-even rates. I'm just wondering, you know, will this effectively hurt the recovery of the Eurozone if the ECB doubles down and adds stimulus here? I mean, I, I don't know if it would necessarily hurt, but I, I think that maybe, you know, maybe we're almost looking at the wrong, wrong indicator, which is, the key stimulus is going to come in through the euro. And I think maybe that's what they're trying to move here. Um, you know, so far, this is, it's, it's on expectation. To, you know, wait, wait, wait. This is important. Hold on a second. So in other words, currency wars. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, let's say, let's say, for example, that Jersey had done something today, something pretty aggressive in terms of rate cuts. We know that there would be some kind of response from the US administration. Now, today, we haven't got that. And I think they're going to be keeping an eye on what the Fed does next week. And that may actually lay some of the groundwork for what they do in September. But I do think that the currency side, when you get to a point where monetary policy is losing effectiveness, and it certainly is at its walls um, in many countries, then your only route to hit the economy is via the currency. And as you said, that invites currency. Hey, Seema, great to catch up with you. Seema Shah, their principal global investors, chief strategist. I think my focus at the moment leads to the prospect of lower rates in Europe. My first question, how will the banks tolerate it? And to see the financials on the Euro stocks 50 up by around about 2.44%, I think is encouraging on the idea that they also implement tiering if they drop rates in September. That's somewhat encouraging. Yeah, it basically is an expectation that the ECB recognizes the pain that they would be inflicting on the banks and that they already have, and that they would uh, lighten the cost that they wouldn't have to necessarily pay banks uh, the full negative 0.5 or pay the 0.5% deposit rate for all of their assets. So we'll see. Let's bring in Jeremy Stretch, shall we? CIBC head of G10 FX strategy. Jeremy, your early thoughts ahead of that news conference in 28 minutes' time. Uh, well, obviously, the uh, the headlines uh, you've just been discussing, and I think in a sense, uh, it looks increasingly likely that uh, Draghi will use his penultimate meeting to effectively throw the kitchen sink at uh, the sort of the underlying backdrop in order to facilitate as better as best a condition as possible to hand over to uh, his successor after his uh, last meeting in October. Um, so I, I think you're right to uh, to laud the, the the prospect of tiering because I think that was one particular concern uh, in relation to the negative deposit rate spectrum because uh, the ECB has been the only of the negative uh, yielding central banks to uh, avoid that scenario thus far. Um, but it seems to be the case that you know 10 basis points is very much baked in for September. The question is, will Draghi uh, allow the market to uh, discuss or consider more than that? And of course, if he does, uh, then that will be a catalyst for the euro to continue to retreat and of course that will be interesting uh, and I'll be keeping my eye on Mr Trump's Twitter feed to just to see if uh, he has an early early response to this. Well Jeremy I want to pick up on that because Seema Shah uh, was just on a principal global investors and she was saying uh, that this essentially is a bid to weaken the euro because we were talking about the potential efficacy and if you look at German markets right now European markets it isn't a material boost to inflation expectations yield curve flatter 
uh, inflation rates over the next 10 years not materially higher. I'm just wondering, do you think that this is just a reignition of currency wars? Well, of course, Mr. Draghi will be asked about the currency today, and as ever, he will always back that back and say that the ECB has no specific intention uh, on the currency. But, of course, implicit to their inflation assumptions are the uh, influence of imported prices. And, of course, if you are going to cheapen up the euro, then you would get higher imported prices and find some stimulus on the inflation side. So, in a sense, it's uh, it's sort of a uh, an implied uh, process, but it does raise the risk of uh, uh, adding to already a, a relatively febrile atmosphere in terms of the uh, currency world, because, of course, these tensions in terms of currency levels are becoming much more um, politicized. And I think that is something that uh, markets will remain very mindful of, even if, uh, as, uh, as I say, Mr. Draghi will push back against any explicit commitment on uh, currency values. Jeremy, we're a week, less than a week, away from what we could get, a, a rate cut from the Federal Reserve. I just wonder if we've had enough today from the ECB and we don't know what comes in the news conference but just so far if you can make a judgment that would be welcome whether we've had enough from the ECB so far to insulate the euro from strength if the Federal Reserve comes out swinging next week. Well, it's, it, it, it is interesting to, uh, you know, to sort of think about the sort of the juxtaposition between the uh, interplay of, of, of central banks. And I think that was one of the reasons why it made sense for the ECB to, to row back from policy action now and to wait and to see what uh, the Federal Reserve are going to do. Now, of course, the ECB would also argue they need to consider these other package of measures to go with the, uh, the, the negative rate story. Um, I think we've, we've obviously seen a market which has, has been anticipating and assuming that there will be uh, monetary easing coming from the Eurozone alongside the macro weakness, so that has been uh, keeping the euro on the defensive. Uh, I guess the question is how, how low can we go, and I think if we do see uh, a print in the upper 110s at this point, I think it may well be the case of uh, uh, just sort of looking to lighten some of those euro short positions, and we may well see a little bit of a constructive bias coming back in, which might just uh, ease the burden a little bit uh, for Mr. Powell next week. So, Jeremy, I want to sort of discuss the uh, consequences of a potential currency war race to the bottom in terms of what you do as an investor wouldn't you just double down on emerging markets and the riskiest currencies because developed markets are all racing to try to make their currencies as weak as possible well, in a world where um, you know, there is this perception of uh, trying to cheapen currencies and or by virtue of uh, monetary policy stimulus, then, of course, then carry is potentially king. So you're, you are coming back to looking at those uh, high-yielding markets and uh, discussing uh, Turkey with, uh, with your colleagues on television a little bit earlier in the context of even with the more aggressive rate cuts that we've seen from the central bank today, you've still got a very substantial real yield uh, level compared to elsewhere. So I think there is going to be a case for investors to continue to look in general for uh, opportunities in high yielding markets but I think it is uh, very much the case that you need to be wary of some of the specific and idiosyncratic issues in some of those EM nations but ultimately in a world where the developed markets or the developed currencies are seemingly under obvious pressure and or external uh, downside risk then investors may well uh, continue to look for those high yielding alternatives elsewhere. So Jeremy I don't know if you read it but there was a story yesterday uh, by my colleague Craig Torres about a professional worrying unit in the New York Federal Reserve, a woman who heads a unit whose job it is just to think, what is the Federal Reserve doing wrong? What could potentially go bust in financial markets? And I would guess that she may be tearing her hair out as she listens to this conversation, thinking, wow, people are being encouraged to lever up, double down on carry trades. What's the potential consequence of that longer term? 
Well, of course, uh, we are in an environment where the assumption is that inflation is uh, relatively benign or if not dead. And so uh, if there were to be uh, some degree of consequence of an inflationary specter coming back into the marketplace, then clearly that would uh, you know, create enormous degrees of instability. And of course, uh, as, we, as we well know, when you're looking at uh, EM markets or uh, less liquid markets, then of course there is that liquidity risk. And uh, that, of course, is one of the, uh, you know, one of the sort of the legacies of the of the post-crisis world over 10 years ago when we had those difficulties in terms of liquidity. So it is, you know, it is this sort of fear or perception of uh, you know, revisiting some of, the, some of the mistakes of the past, which I guess uh, will be causing some consternation for those that are paid to, uh, to worry about what could go wrong. Jeremy, we're very much in an easing cycle now. Australia cutting rates, South Africa cutting rates, South Korea cutting rates, Indonesia cutting rates, the ECB teeing one up, the Federal Reserve next week. Slipping under the radar, no one's really talking about it. The Bank of Japan. Jeremy, are you expecting anything from the BOJ anytime soon? That's a very good question. In a sense, they have, you're, you're absolutely right. They have been sort of uh, left out of the sort of the market discussion for some considerable time. Um, and we are in an environment where the sort of the macro story remains under a little bit of threat. And obviously, there's, there's, there's this ongoing issue regarding the uh, consumption tax hike that's uh, coming through and how that will impact on the, on the consumer side. Um, so I think it is going to be a case that uh, markets will be watching out for perhaps uh, the, the uh, Bank of Japan looking to uh, continue to extend its own balance so in a sense, uh, it has been the one central bank that's been off the, uh, the radar screen. Uh, I think invariably you know, markets have become accustomed to the Bank of Japan always consistently uh, arguing that it will get to its inflation target over the, over the rainbow almost as, as, as we speak, but uh, never actually achieving it. And I think still that's the presumption. And so the, uh, the Bank of Japan will continue to remain exceptionally easy. But I think it's, it's not the, sort of the preeminent story in terms of the uh, global central bank cycle as we, uh, as we currently speak. Hey, Jeremy, great to catch up with you. Jeremy Stretch there, CIBC head of G10 FX Strategy. Well, Saturday Night Live has become an institution since 1975. Lauren Michaels has brought SNL into our living rooms each Saturday night. David Rubenstein, Carlisle Group co-founder and host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations, sat down uh, with Mr. Michaels. Uh, Take a listen to what they had to say. So from 1975, the late 70s or early 80s, how has humor changed? Are people laugh at the same kind of things or certain things you can make fun of now you couldn't or vice versa? Um, There's almost nothing we did in the 70s that I could do now. Gilda Radner would not be able to play Rosanna Zanardana. John Belushi would not be able to play Japanese. Uh, Garrett Morris doing news for the hard of hearing would have been making fun of a handicap. So it's it's just all values change. And then I always say that between the movie Arthur and the movie Arthur Two, alcoholism became a disease, and no one wanted to laugh at drunks anymore. Whereas for 200 years they laughed at drunks. That's David uh, Rubenstein speaking with uh, SNL's uh, Lorne uh, Michaels. David Rubenstein, Carlisle Group co-founder and host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations. Uh, You can hear that tonight on Bloomberg Radio at 5 p.m. David, thanks so much for joining us. Just a fascinating uh, discussion I'm sure you had uh, with Lorne. Could you just give us a key takeaways that you had from your conversation? Well, Lorne is somebody who um, has uh, been running this show more or less for 40 years. Um, he, he started it, and for five years he ran it, and then he took five, year, five years off to do some pro- 
producing of movies in Hollywood and so forth and other TV shows. And then he came back. So he's been running it for 40 years. Think about how many people have been at the top of their profession for 40 years. But this show has sustained itself because he's been able to figure out what makes people laugh and to evolve that. As he said, it's different than it was years ago. But he's a very smart person, very much has his finger on the pulse of what's funny and what is not funny. And obviously his political humor recently has gotten an enormous amount of attention. Talking about the enormous amount of tension around political humor and the things that you could say in the 70s versus not today, by the way, that was hysterical. Uh, I'm wondering how their approach to political news has shifted. I mean, are there things that they can do now or can't do now that they used to be able to do there? I think that they are willing to take on both sides, Democrats, Republicans, everybody. I think they feel they can make fun of virtually anybody in politics because politicians probably have a lower Uh, public esteem than they did many years ago. And therefore, I don't think they upset that many people when they attack politicians. But obviously, if you're the one being attacked or you're the supporters of the one being attacked, yes, you're not happy. But generally, the political humor is what they they find is the most appealing thing that they put on the air. So I think they're going to continue to do that. And obviously, many politicians are pretty good uh, uh, examples of people that you can make fun of. So, David, one of the things you mentioned, or one of the things I find so uh, fascinating about Lorne Michaels is that he's been at the top of his game for so long. It's You rarely see that in any walk of life, much, much less show business. Did you get a sense of what continues to drive Lorne Michaels? Well, he's driven by, uh, I think, the fact that he, he is a perfectionist. He likes being the top of the profession. I, he let me come to one of the shows that he was uh, uh, producing. I saw he's deeply involved in every detail. He's on the set. He goes through every script. He goes through all the rehearsals. So he is pretty much um, a hands-on person. Very often, after 40 years, some people tend to kick themselves upstairs a bit and aren't as involved in the details, but he's involved in everything, and I think that's one of the keys to his success. What was the most surprising thing that you learned from the interview? Well, the most surprising thing, I guess, is that um, he um, doesn't really want to say what who's the funniest person of all time. Or what was the funniest show? He's very reluctant to to point out one show versus another, one comedian versus another. So um, he he wouldn't say Eddie Murphy's funnier than the Gilda Radner or so forth. Um, He obviously has his views on that, but he didn't really want to talk about that, in part because I don't think he really wants to pick between the various comedians. If you look at the comedians he's had over the 40 years, it's it's virtually anybody who's been funny over the last 40 years in, in television or in movies has been on that show. And I guess he does this one. It's like saying, which of your children do you like the most? Nobody wants to answer that question. (laughs) Nobody wants to answer that question. Have you watched SNL for a a long time, personally? I've watched it for a long time, and uh, I'm glad they haven't made fun of uh, me yet. But uh, I suspect (laughs) at some point they will. So, so David, going forward, what do you think Lorne Michaels' next five to ten years, I don't want to think 40 years, but is he planning on doing this for the foreseeable future? Like many people at the top of the profession who've done it for a while, they are reluctant to say when they're going to step down because when you say that, you've become a bit of a lame duck. Um, He is in pretty good health uh, mentally and physically. It's clear he has a great work quotient, so I don't see him slowing down anytime soon. And in this day and age, you can work to your 80. I think he's 
and mid-70s now, you can work your 80s and people are still saying, okay, if you can do the job, fine. So I think he'll be there for quite some time. And the ratings are good, so why would anybody want to get rid of him if you're at Comcast, which is the owner of NBC? That's right. The ratings are good. That's always the bottom line. David Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, David Rubenstein, Carlisle Group co-founder and host of Peer to Peer Conversations. You can hear that tonight on Bloomberg Radio at 5 p.m. Wall Street time. Well, one of the things that big technology has to deal with, I think, which is new for Silicon Valley, is regulatory oversight uh, by U.S. politicians and regulators. Historically, Washington's taken a fairly light touch to Silicon Valley, but that may be changing. To get a sense of how this might develop, we welcome our good friend Shira Oviday, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering all things technology. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Shira, thanks so much for joining us. It seems like things have changed a little bit. The rhetoric coming out of Washington has changed a little bit as it relates to big tech. What do you make of it? I think that's a correct assessment. I mean, particularly the last couple of years, there has been, I think, a little bit more focus among the public and people like me and lawmakers about some of the downsides of technology, right? That the focus, I think, in the prior decade had been about all these great things that technology had brought us, uh, you know, iPhones and breaking down barriers between people and and kind of removing the power of distribution from the hands of the elites. And those things are all true, but we're also thinking about, gee, there were some bad things that went along with that. And I think now you're seeing that big technology companies, particularly in Washington, which is, I think, new for Silicon Valley, big tech companies are now this punching bag. It's literally the only bipartisan issue in Washington is to criticize big technology companies for um, for their downsides, again, I think both real and somewhat imagined in some it's, cases. Big tech has become a verbal punching bag as to actual action. Perhaps they're missing with their punches because so far, certainly uh, there doesn't seem to be much of an impact on share price. It doesn't seem to be much of an impact on the bottom line. And frankly, lobbying costs may have ticked up a bit on part of big tech because it has hit a record. But other than that, it seems rather ineffectual. Will this U.S. Department of Justice inquiry, which they announced on Tuesday, be somewhat different? So I think it's easy to be cynical, and I am too, yes, right? Yes, it's easy the, to be cynical. I enjoy it <laughs> About the, the speed of Washington relative to rhetoric. But I do think that this kind of broad tech reckoning, it is having an impact. So uh, just to pull out a couple of examples, uh, Amazon uh, last year announced that it was increasing the minimum wage for all of its workers, sort of $15 an hour. And you know, that may have been a business decision, right? The labor market is tight, and that may have been kind of a decision to attract a better caliber of workers on Amazon's part. But it also came after the company faced a high degree of criticism, particularly from Bernie Sanders, the now Democratic um, presidential candidate, for working conditions, uh, particularly of the warehouse workers, people who work in the warehouses, right? So that's a case where um, political rhetoric probably did have an impact. Um, if you look at Facebook's earnings yesterday, again, if you look at Facebook's top line, you can say, well, the FTC fined them $5 billion and it didn't matter. There's been all these privacy headaches and scandals and it didn't matter. But Facebook is talking about a sort of step down in growth over time, uh, including late this year and into next year. And it blamed in part 
some of these privacy changes that either it's implementing because of all these scandals or that are being imposed on it from the outside. Uh, like in Europe, there's been, uh, last year they implemented a fairly strict data privacy law, and Facebook has said that is having an impact on our ability to highly target these ads based on our human surveillance machine, and that's resulting in kind of a slower rate of revenue growth. So I think those are some examples where, yeah, there's a lot of rhetoric and a lot of baloney um, in political capitals all over the world, but some of these privacy and broad tech reckonings are actually having an impact on business. So when we talk about big tech, we think about Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple. Is there a sense that one is more at risk than the others. Others, I mean, you mentioned Facebook, and that seems like one because we're talking about people's privacy and their personal communications. Is there a sense that one might be more at risk than the other? It's a little bit hard to know because the issue with antitrust investigations is that you just, they're so unpredictable, you have no sense of where they're going to lead. And if you give government investigators basically uh, power to dig up every email that Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos has ever have ever sent, who knows what they will find. But saying that, I think it's generally thought that both Google and Facebook are maybe a little bit more exposed than Amazon and Apple. Um, in part because of the the size and just kind of global span of their businesses. And also, they're both these kind of ad machines that basically have their hooks into just about every corner of the, the internet economy. So as I mentioned before, lobbying costs on the part of big tech have reached record levels, not only for big tech, but just for any industry whatsoever, uh, certainly trying to make their influence felt in Washington, D.C. What do they want to see? Well, I think they want to influence any kind of legislative action, right? So, well, I mean, I guess another way to phrase this is, are they conceding there will be legislative action and they're basically going to propose some sort of self-regulatory mechanism? And if that's the case, what is it? Yes, I do. Th that is exactly what they want. Like any company, right? The tech companies, they realize there is probably going to be fe both federal and state legislation in the United States that impacts their business. And so they're trying to have a hand in influencing the outcome of that legislation. So there's privacy legislation that's being considered both in Congress and in multiple states. California passed a what seems like a fairly strict kind of online privacy uh, regulation recently. Other states are considering similar things. There's all kinds of um, activity around political election um, advertisements that also affect the big tech companies. Again, these antitrust investigations, uh, Congress is also engaged in its own antitrust investigations of big tech companies. So on multiple fronts, you see the big tech companies, again, like any giant industry before at banking, energy, they're trying to influence lawmakers and to make sure that if there is legislation passed that affects their business, that they try to control any downside. We've even heard some, you know, some of the politicians probably most likely like uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren talking about potentially breaking up big tech. Is that even remote risk, do you think? I, I, I'll go back to say I don't know because you just don't know what happens yep. when these antitrust investigators get involved. I think right now that d doesn't feel like a serious possibility, but 
we'll see. The, the nature of investigations is that they're unpredictable. You know, one thing that uh, strikes me as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, these big tech executives, they have to get ahead both in terms of legislative action, but also from a public relations standpoint. They have to come out and say, privacy is important. We don't want bad actors. Some smaller uh, companies that operate in the tech space are using your data for things that are bad. We don't. Here are all the protections that we have. Are you expecting statements like that in the earnings? I and mean, I'm thinking Amazon reporting earnings after the bell. Is that something that, they, uh, that you expect them to do or, or that they should do? I think the tech companies, you, you can see it. They are now very concerned about their public perception. And companies, let's take Apple as an example. They have made um, kind of data privacy an explicit marketing pitch to its customers saying, you're worried about the safety of you and your kids online. We're worried about that too. Here are ways that we are implementing kind of data privacy protections and encryption on our gadgets. Please buy them. And I think you can go on down the list in, uh, of all of these tech companies. They realize they need to project the image to their customers and potential customers and advertisers and, and other business allies that they are taking seriously concerns that these companies are too big, hurting the economy, hurting workers, hurting competition, hurting privacy. They know this. And so, yeah, they are engaged in kind of image burnishing efforts. Sure, Ovide. Thank you. I know you've been crazy busy, and we always love getting your insights uh, as we do. Also, reading your columns, you can find them on the the terminal, O-P-I-N, go, or you can go online, Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Shira Ovide is a technology columnist, and she is basically glued to her computer. It actually just came with her and is sort of stuck (laughs) to her back as she writes her 25th column of the week. Uh, But definitely interesting to see uh, what's going to happen with Amazon earnings. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.